welcome to the Peace Coalition podcast. Um, I am your host, Thomas Coleman. Uh, the other host, Destiny Martin, could not be here today, but I am happy to welcome our first guest on the show, Dr. Barden. Um, you know, Dr. Barden, feel free to introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah, so I have been on the faculty at Howard University in the Department of Psychology for 15 years. Uh, before that, I uh, had my kind of pursued my PhD and completed it at Ohio State University. And even back when I was doing my master's project uh, back in the 90s, uh, I or started at the very end of the 90s and then early aughts, um, I was interested in uh, automatically activated racial attitudes. Some people say implicit bias, you know, there are a number of terms. And so that was my very first real research project. So I've had a longstanding interest in that. Uh, more recently, I actually do uh, implicit bias trainings for uh, elected officials in Washington, D.C. It's a totally separate wow. consulting thing that I do. So, um, you know, there are a variety of different ways that I kind of interface with the questions you guys are interested in. And I'm just this semester taught a graduate seminar on intergroup dynamics and race relations. Uh, so it's uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, kind of uh, entry points. So I'm looking forward to the conversation, and uh, yeah, let's get into it. Um, I'm going to jump right into some questions here. Um, one thing I was thinking about after reading some of your research: um, Would you say that prejudice is strictly a learned mindset, or are there other factors that cause it, such as environment, events, media, things like that? Uh, yeah, so this is a really, you know, interesting question because uh, to me, we are, you know, presumably we're not, if we're born, we don't have a bias at the moment of birth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we have measures that actually uh, show uh, biases starting, you know, race-based bias, for example, starting at the age of five or six years old. There's even a few measures that appear to show that as early as three, although that's a, a little bit less confirmed. Uh, so certainly something is going on starting pretty early on that is creating uh, race-based preferences. Uh, wow. And um, you know where those come from, uh, we all are existing in this social environment, right? So as children, we have teachers, we have parents, we have uh, peers, we hear things that have happened, we have things happen to ourselves, we have entertainment that we're watching and taking in, we have news that we're taking in, uh, all of these sorts of things. There's, there's the things we say and also the nonverbal communication that we are engaged in as well. Uh, so all of that people absorb over time and they develop associations with different categories of people. I and mean, we're focusing on race here, but all kinds of different categories of people. That's very interesting. And I think it's interesting that you actually mentioned um, the age, because that was another question that we were curious about. Um, so do you think that, you know, you said about five, maybe even earliest three, um, do you think that that is a crucial point in, you know, like bias development or, you know, instilling in children you know, this is okay, or this is not okay. And I'm not saying any particular viewpoint is okay or not okay, but just instilling viewpoints in general or prejudice. So I think 
there is clear evidence that in that early age bracket, um, parental attitudes influence children and they influence children more, the more identified the child is with the parent. So if there's a parent they're more identified with, their racial attitudes are gonna reflect that parent more so than the one they're less identified with. So essentially the one that they like more is the one they're going or to- Or the one they feel closest with, the one that they, maybe they, you know, there's, we don't know exactly, but it's identifying, you know, it's identifying with. Similarly, there's evidence that teacher attitudes on race influence children's attitudes on race. So, so significant adult role models seem, you know, have been established as one of, again, there's all these sources of information, one of those sources of information. We do know that contact itself and the, the nature of the contacts and whether it's good contact or bad contact between uh, individuals of different races has a huge impact as well. Okay, thank you for that. Um, you know, and it, it makes me wonder um, because I know not everyone intentionally tries to be prejudiced. I, I recall um, from your research, it's, it's titled, just for everyone's uh, reference, I'll, I'll say the title, Saying No to Negativity, the Effects of Context and Motivation to Control Prejudice on Automatic Evaluative Responses. Um, you mentioned a quote from Jesse Jackson on how he says, nothing is more painful to me at this stage in my life than to walk down the street and hear footsteps and start thinking about robbery and look around and see somebody white and feel relieved. And obviously Jesse Jackson is a well-renowned well -renowned civil rights activist. So we, we know that he is not a uh, racist person or is someone who is thinking that way, but at the end of the day, he still is acknowledging that there is a certain level of unconscious bias present within himself. And so I was just curious, you know, in regards to someone's automatic level of prejudice, or, you know, as you said in your research, motivation to control prejudice, if someone acknowledges they have some form of prejudice within themselves, can they actively reverse that? So, yeah, what, there's, there's so much in that quote, and it is so like painful to hear in a way, because it yeah. seems like hopeless, right? If Jesse Jackson is experiencing this, <laughs> exactly. what can any of us do, right? But let's not, let's not get lost in hopelessness. And I know that he would not want us to. So let's unpack that quote. There's a physical context around him, right? So there's a dark alleyway, you imagine like an urban setting or something like that. This is the kind of setting that evokes not just physical danger, but potential danger from another person, right? So this, is, this physical context is going to elicit certain, it's gonna activate certain uh, stereotypes. And we know from research that those stereotypes are associated particularly with black race and particularly especially with black men. And so that setting specifically is going to evoke those ideas. Now, Jesse Jackson has gone a step further and he has noticed this. So he hasn't stopped with just the implicit kind of bias that's activated by this setting. He's gone further and realized this is painful to him. And that indicates that 
that implicit bias has actually come to awareness for him. So he's gone to the point where he's aware of something that has its roots in something implicit. And now he, it's painful to him. If it's painful to him, he's trying to correct it. So he's trying to consciously, actively do something about that. This is what we see in our research. We see that there are certain individuals who are motivated to control their prejudice. And the settings in which they are able to do so, even for their implicit responses, are the settings where if you encountered another person, that person could be sort of physically threatening to you. And what's interesting is that we've shown this we show this in a prison setting, fine, okay, that is that is an intersection of all of the sort of negative stereotypes we know are there for black men. Okay, so that one is, is like super straightforward. But we also showed it, we have a just a rural street, just, you know, green on each side and just a wall of fog, okay? Not something that particularly evokes um, images of, you know, negative black stereotypes or anything like that. We took it as a place where if you encounter another person, that person could just seem threatened. That's it, just person threat, kind of pure, right? Okay. And that was enough by itself to take specifically people who are motivated to control their prejudices, like Jesse Jackson, and they were actually able to inhibit those negative responses, even implicit responses. And that's the incredible thing about it. So whether it's Jesse Jackson or somebody else who's really motivated to control their prejudices, that suggests that they practiced again and again in settings where a person might be threatening, they practice again and again to avoid being prejudiced. And the final piece of this research, and this is now really getting a little into the weeds, but I have to say this, the effect is driven not on the positive side. It's not enhancing positive responses to a black person that you encounter in that setting. It is inhibiting or slowing down negative responses to a black person in a setting where a person might be physically threatening. Okay, so it's, it's essentially it's not changing someone's viewpoint it's just causing them enough time to reflect and actively push that viewpoint aside yes that is in the first hundred or 200 or 2000 times but mm -hmm. on the measure we were using it shows that they have practiced this so many times that the combination of black race black male really plus this place where a person could be threatening, the combination of those two things has this automatized sort of correction that they do. Yeah. So this gives us some hope that we can, over time, practice something where we are kind of adjusting our responses to try and fix a very carefully combination of things that would otherwise evoke this bias. You say that they say practice makes perfect. So I understand um, how that could be possible, especially um, I remember <laughs> I had a teacher in high school who used to tell me, he said, I was raised to be racist. And it was, it was a strong comment for me to sit in class. I was like, wow, like, wow that you said that but 
you know, that that's true. Like there's some people, like you said, you know, you have all these role models in your life, your family who may think one way. And I think, I think that's one of the coolest things about today's generation is that um, they simply won't just blindly follow their parents' viewpoints or their grandparents' uh, you know, ideas. And they're constantly challenging like, well, why do you think this way? And that could be in regards to so many things, uh, so many issues that are highly controversial right now. Um, and so that's one thing that I love about us, you know, Gen Z, even millennials, things like that. But it's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, sometimes you can't help but change your, your, your thinking. Like, but you can't, you can't help your thinking originally. So you have to actively um, work on that and change that. You know, I, sometimes I think when I'm, I'm walking or something or I, I may think a thought that I was like, now, why would I, why would I think that? You know, and this isn't like maybe a, a racist thing or anything like that, but it may just be a, a thought that I don't appreciate. Like, I don't, I don't really know why I would assume that or why. I would say that inside my head. Um, and I think that for you to say that, that, that does give us, give me a lot of hope that these prejudice and these, you know, implicit bias that people have can be changed. And so now I feel like it's not even an excuse to say that, you know, I was raised to be this way or something like that, because I know people that, you know, that means he actively worked on it and tried to see other viewpoints, tried to see other people's side and now he doesn't think that way or he's not set to think that way. When I, uh, and I co-lead these implicit bias trainings uh, with uh, this guy, Terrence Winston, um, and uh, he and I in our separate conversations about this, you know, we realized that everybody is on a journey on this and nobody, there's no, endpoint you don't get right with prejudice and race right. ever it's that's not the goal so our what we're trying to do in those trainings is wherever somebody is and they might be further along than Terrence and I are whatever further along means right wherever somebody is we just try and give some tools, some examples, some experiences, some interactive elements, some conversations, some context where they can have an opportunity to move forward in their own understanding uh, and in their openness to uh, trying to understand other people's experiences uh, in their empathy and their perspective taking in their own goals for themselves uh, in challenging themselves and in their self-knowledge. And, and I think, you know, this, this kind of comes back to a question about, you know, what talking about what you come from and understanding what you come from in mm -hmm. a way uh, is, I think, you know, uh, you know, at least for me personally, understanding and un peeling back the layers of privilege and understanding what that means and how that changes the way that I, the, is the lens that I see things with. That's something that's an ongoing process and is, is useful. And some people may articulate that like your teacher did and some may kind of hold that internally, but I think understanding the, 
the ongoing process of peeling back those layers of the onion or whatever of your you know your experiences uh, and how they may be different from others and and why does other people may end up in a different or be in a different place I think that's a really uh, that is a helpful exercise yeah, it's, it's definitely fun to sit back and think at what point did my mindset you know change on this or did I develop that opinion on this um, and a lot of people you know it may take some time but it usually you can find it if you really sat down and looked hard enough. It may be memories that may be blocked out. You know, I know how things like that can happen as well. But, you know, there are situations and experiences that help shape who we are. So that's the kind of cool part about life when you think about it, you know, that's why nobody is the same. There was one other thing that you said that I want to unpack a little bit, if it's okay. Go ahead. You were talking about having a thought Mm -hmm. And then you're having another thought about that thought, like mm -hmm. questioning it, like saying, maybe I'm not sure about that or something like that. Right. Yes. So what you've differentiated very nicely is something we refer to in psychology as a primary thought. And then the thought about the thought is called a secondary thought or the other term is metacognition. Okay. okay. So these secondary thoughts or metacognitions are really important when it comes to that initial effortful uh, correcting or trying to change your prejudice responses. So, you know, that is you have some response that may sort of may be more automatic, implicit, whatever you want to call it. You that's your sort of initial thing, your primary thought that happens, right? It rises up to consciousness and starts influencing behavior or whatever. And then right. you have a secondary thought like, huh, that's weird. Like, why did I do that, right? So that's that, and, and, and so that is part of the process that somebody would need to go through in order to kind of start to change things that are previously kind of habitual. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I think um, especially, so really it still comes down to the fact that if someone has, you know, a certain level of bias or a certain level of prejudice within themselves, they are going to eventually have to understand that something about that is not right for them to even have that secondary, you know, metacognition that you mentioned um, in questioning why they would have the original thought. Yep, you got wow. it. Your quick wow. study, all right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, it's just, it just, it's, it's crazy to think about that. You know, um, we have, we have to first acknowledge that um, some people may, you know, agree that one particular bias is completely wrong. I think, you know, all forms of prejudice. That's, all forms of prejudice. That's wrong. Um, and, but we, ha you have to have someone actively acknowledge that that is as well. And so I think that's probably where a lot of our issues in this country occurs, the different opinion, differing opinions on what is okay, what is not okay. But that kind of leads me, I guess I'll go to the next question. I think, um, let's start, you know, kind of venturing into law enforcement, you know, how this will apply to law enforcement. Um, First, I want to ask about something that I was mentioned 
this isn't research that you've done, but you uh, sent me the article. Um, it was called Irwin's Reference. Understanding police and expert performance when training at attenuates, attenuates versus exasperates stereotypic bias in the decision to shoot. Um, they mentioned something in there called signal detection theory. Um, and I was just wondering if, you know, for the audience, you could explain that a little bit more and the role it may play in a cop's decision, you know, to shoot someone or in a cop's decision to do any following thing with a particular person. Yeah, so signal detection theory, what the researchers are doing with it is that they're taking a set of decisions uh, and they are trying to pull apart the sources of what led to those decisions. Uh, and so in this particular paradigm, uh, it's called the first person shooter task. And it's kind of what you might expect. That is, uh, they have set up kind of images of backgrounds and they've put individuals in them, usually a black male or white male. And those individuals are holding objects that are either guns or not guns. And so the task is, you know, when that picture comes up to make a decision whether to shoot, which is the correct response if someone is pointing a gun at you or to not shoot, which is the correct response if they're, if they're holding something that's not a gun. So you can have, uh, you can see that you can have correct responses in this task mm -hmm. and you can have error responses in this task. And you can have those for the person that is holding a gun and person is, that's holding a non-gun. So what signal detection theory allows you to do is to separate out two pieces, one piece that contains bias and differs basically that, that drives biased responses and the other one that doesn't. And so it's just sort of a mathematical way of separating out those two things. So it's just important to, uh, before we can understand the bias piece, we have to separate out mathematically the part where somebody's just either very accurate at the task or very inaccurate at the task in general. Some people are just good at the task. And so they're going to get almost all of them right. And some are bad at the task. That is, they're going to get almost all of them wrong. And that has nothing to do with whether their mistakes are showing racial bias or not. So we mathematically, or I should say the researchers mathematically subtract that accuracy in order to get a pure sense of the bias. The bias piece is called criterion. Uh, it might be almost easier to think of this as threshold. So a pattern of bias would be that if it's a black male, then it doesn't need to look very much like a gun in order for somebody to shoot. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's a white male, it has to look extremely like a gun, like really obviously a gun in order for the person to shoot, okay? relatively speaking. So their threshold or their criterion for choosing to shoot differs based on race. Okay. Interesting. It's, it, it's very, it's very uh, interesting to understand because, um, you know, it's, it's something that conversations that have been had, I've, a lot of parents, um, 
famously, you know, in the Black community have to have a conversation that they refer to with their kids called the talk, you know, and just in dealing with police or law enforcement, you know, definitely keep your hands very still. Uh, you don't want to grab things, um, you know, that look like a weapon, you know, for example, uh, like, um, what's that, what is that movie, um, The Hate You Give? Um, that's a movie about, you know, a, a teenage uh, black boy who was uh, shot by a police officer um, and he was holding a, if I'm not mistaken, he was holding a hairbrush. And so that was just, um, you know, a, a sign of how something could be misidentified as a weapon and then affect the police officer's decision to shoot um, versus, you know, someone else. And so I think it was interesting that you mentioned that part, talking about how it had to be very obviously a weapon. Um, and then for others may not be as obvious and they still may decide to shoot. So, you know, that in those situations that that's proving um, that these cops may have, or there's people in law enforcement may have some form or some level of implicit violence, you know, um, something that they want to particularly address. And it leads me to a statistic actually, um, it is black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police. Um, so that's, that's just, that's a little bit telling of how these situations occur often um, in our country. And so do you think that there is something, and you talk about how you do implicit bias training, so I'd love to hear what you have to say on this. You think there is something that could be done during the hiring process or during training that could help police, police officers better understand their motivation to control or this implicit bias? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is, again, returning to the research we were just talking about, uh, which is kind of Josh Carell, who's the second author on that particular one, is the one that's been doing a lot of this research. Um, so in that paper, he finds that you can train regular folks or police officers on the task. And what you can do is you can train them to really pay attention to the nature of the object in the person's hands. And so then they get better at the task and that decreases that bias and criterion, that threshold difference for race. So uh, they also found the same thing for officers who had received a lot of prior training separately. So not just specific on this task, but just more experienced and like, you know, had maybe done some more simulators of another kind that's just part of police training and so forth compared to more novice, like new cadets, okay? Um, so that's one thing to say. Uh, the other counterpoint, so that's training that can lead to fewer errors, better outcomes, right? Okay. Less bias. The, but here is the hard part, which is that if you set up this shooter paradigm, this as it's called, or the first person shooter task officially, if you set it up so that the more of the black men have guns in their hands than non-guns and more of the white men have non-guns than guns. So if you put, if you build that co-variation into the game, 
that will increase the threshold bias. So if regular everyday folks or police officers on a daily basis experience or uh, in some way that there is an association between black men in particular and guns and white men in particular and not having guns. If they experience that in, from entertainment, from the, the, they use the manipulation of just reading a single newspaper article about um, black crime, crime uh, example of black crime as opposed to white crime, like white men with guns. It, there was a whole newspaper article I read about that. That actually eliminated this threshold bias in the same way that a similar article with black criminals that had guns actually exacerbated it, made it worse. So what this suggests is that, you know, we need to think about what environment of information and experiences our police officers are having and which ones are they choosing and which ones can they not really choose uh, and thinking about the environments that you know some police officers are in in terms of their the communities that they're working with hopefully um, okay well, I, I appreciate that. That and that does help. That helps me understand. It it, it just it shows that that is possible. Um, it may be difficult. You know, there's a lot of gray area there, but it's definitely possible um, that these actions could be enacted or developed within the training process of police officers. You spoke. Um, one thing that we we talked about does not even speak about it. One thing that we've been talking about within the Peace Coalition and we've uh, done some research on is um, police officers and law enforcement being, having ties to extremist groups, or, you know, uh, white supremacist groups and things like that. And I know that uh, you are not as knowledgeable on actual white supremacist groups, but I, you said that you would be willing to provide a little insight on, you know, what, is going on in the minds of people who are thinking, you know, what, what's motivating them to join these extremist groups? Yeah, and this, as you kind of frame nicely, is just in general terms. This can be any sort of group, uh, either on the left or on the right, like mm -hmm. internationally, domestically, what, whatever that is. Um, the first thing we wanna unpack for a second is why people join groups at all. People join groups in part for psychological reasons. And so groups give us some structure to live in. They give us some norms for behavior. They give us a sense that we belong to something and people have a need to belong as, social, as a social species. Uh, they give us a sense that maybe we're part of the group and maybe somebody else isn't. Right, and that might make us feel good, and we are motivated to feel good about ourselves and our our identities. And we also kind of share resources and do nice things for the members of our group in a way that we wouldn't for the members that are outside our groups. Okay. 
So these are some of the things that make groups happen and why human beings find themselves in groups in the first place. Now, imagine all of those things decrease our sense of uncertainty in the world, according to at least one view of why groups exist and people are motivated to be in part of them. So now if we think about extremist groups, extremist groups are particularly good at decreasing uncertainty, okay? So if somebody finds themselves in a situation where they feel economically uncertain, politically uncertain, uh, maybe you know they're having a hard time making sense of the world for some reason, it seems to be changing a lot. There seems to be like shifting, like something is unsettling or uncertain about the future. They are going to be drawn particularly to extremist groups. Now, why is that, okay? The reason is because extremist groups have certain qualities that are really good at reducing uncertainty. Mm. One of them is they have very, very strict boundaries around them, right? They may be small as well. So it gives you a sense of specialness. If you're inside a group with a very strict boundary and which is very small, you feel it, it, it's, it's, it reduces your uncertainty more and makes you feel even more special. Like a sense of exclusivity. exclusivity. That's, that's right. That's right. Mm. Extremist groups also have rigid rules for behavior and uh, sort of ideologies and norms of things we believe in. For somebody who feels like the world is uncertain, they feel unmoored, like things are changing a lot, something, you know, that's very reassuring. You have very strict things we all have to agree to. I understand my very specific role, which is prescribed for me within this group. All of those things reduce my sense of uncertainty in the world. And so if you understand it in this lens, then you start to, I mean, this has been applied. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about um, uh, sort of terrorist groups, like jihadist type groups, okay? So if you have a circumstance where you have a society where the economic opportunities are unclear, where the political circumstances are uh, not clear as well, there's upheaval, uh, there's economic opportunities lacking and so forth and so on, you could, and you know, some aspects of, of sort of modern international life are happening and you don't quite understand those. Um, under those circumstances, you can imagine that an extremist sort of jihadi type group might be appealing to give that person a lot of the things that they're not getting psychologically. So uh, that's kind of the argument that's made about why folks might be attracted to uh, extremist groups. Okay, so it's, it's, it's really just a sense of, it makes sense when you think about it in a group setting, you know, since the community, a sense of exclusiveness within like-minded individuals, but it's still, when people need that kind of structure, um, probably not as, I'm not gonna say free thinkers, but they have a sense of need to be somewhere in that group, no matter whatever that means. Like, their responsibility, as you talked about, um, their responsibilities, what their one responsibility is to that group, things like that. So, so thank you for that. 
Um, I appreciate that. Um, I think my last question um, was just about, you know, previously we were talking about people that may have, they, they have this prejudice or this implicit bias um, for them to change those viewpoints. They are mo they're going to have to want to change those viewpoints. Um, what is your recommendation in dealing with someone because our whole goal with the Peace Coalition, we want, we want to target people that we know have differing viewpoints from us. Um, we, we want to spread the knowledge, spread the understanding. I think that's a really good word, is just understanding each other. Um, because I, I, one thing that I constantly ask myself is like, what point does acknowledging someone else's cultural differences shift into a prejudice? Um, and I think that that's, that alone is important to be able to acknowledge that actually you know what that's that's a good question to ask as well you know um what's, what's your take on that yeah well? so i found that an interesting question because <laughs> i i'll tell you it reminded me of something that has a kind of a totally different approach to it so i don't know how you'll find this but i'll lay it out there anyway so when we think about workplaces okay they're Psychologists have generally divided up workplaces as they approach diversity into two kind of approaches. One of them is a colorblind approach where the approach is to act like racial differences, mm -hmm. ethnic differences, like nation of origin differences. This don't exist. We're just don't exist, right? Yeah, or I don't see color. Exactly. I don't see mm -hmm. color being the kind of classic quote. And the other one is multicultural, which is talking about celebrating, encouraging members that are not of the majority group in particular to share the strengths and kind of cultural resources and, and so forth that come from their cultural, racial, ethnic, national background as a strength. So, there's just, just to summarize some really basic research, uh, or I could just ask you, who do you think is more comfortable in each of those, with each of those two approaches? Interesting. Um, I would, are you asking like who is comfortable with those approaches or who, like which one? Imagine you have, so you have like majority, we have a, a company where we have the majority of individuals are, kind of white, maybe it means male, and then you have a smaller number of non-white individuals, non like, you know, born in that country, right? Right. Okay, I would definitely say that probably the, um, I guess that larger group would be a little more comfortable with the, the colorblind mindset, most likely, versus the other group that is non-white is probably going to be a little more accepting of being multicultural because um, I feel like when, I, when I've heard that in the past, it has, um, well, that's one thing that, you know, as I'm a senior in college, so I am definitely, I've had, I've had um, some internships, I'm looking for uh, jobs in the future. And one thing that I'm really, um, it's really important to me is company culture, um, how they you know, interact with people, how, how accepting they are of other individuals. And I think that when I hear things like that, 
um, we don't see color or we're colorblind, it, it most likely will turn me off towards um, wanting to pursue um, a position with that company just because I think that it's important to acknowledge that people are different than you and that is completely okay. Um, if, you, if you say things like uh, you don't see color, um, as I, that can lead to conversations where you may assume um, someone is just like you and they may not be. You know, you assume that they've had the same experience as you and they may not have. Um, and then it may be, um, you may come off as insensitive. And so I don't, I don't think that that's ever good for those, you know, those non, um, probably those non-white individuals that are of any other culture, no matter what race they are or religion they are. Um, I think that definitely that, that that's, that's, that's important. Um, and that's, and that's what makes me question that, you know, is like, I, I, as someone, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that you are different than me. You know, we come from a different background. Um, and this is just in general, and I'm not talking about you in particular, I'm saying um, yeah. someone may be a uh, different background, you know, different religion, um, different ethnicity, different race, all those things. And I don't want to be ignorant to who you are and, you know, what makes you you, because I feel like that's probably one of the most powerful things in companies is people's different backgrounds helps bring in a new point of view. I think that um, uh, a lot of times if I see maybe an ad that may have received backlash or anything like that, um, I think I wonder if someone, the people that that offended, if one person like that would have been in the room, would that have still you know, aired or would that still have been posted? And so I think that that only makes a company stronger if you have multicultural representation because a company is used most of the time is trying to appeal to a general fan base. And that's, you know, as many consumers as possible. And, um, you know, if you are very successful, you're probably not going to have just one group of people that's your consumer. That's a whole lot of a ground cover there for sure. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, and so one of the really interesting challenges, I think, is how to have a multicultural corporate or whatever entity you're like organizing larger entity mm -hmm. uh, that is something th that a majority group, let's say, you know, white in the United States is, feels comfortable engaging in, in an open and honest way. And I think that's the, one of the challenges, uh, you know, and of course, multiculturalism, we all, we want to center non-white voices. We want to, you know, be uh, talking about the strengths and you know, um, perspectives uh, that that brings. And if the whole company is to move forward in that direction, what aspect, what could you do that would make it work for everybody? And I think that's a really interesting challenge. To your point, is it a conversation where it's okay 
okay or do you want it to be okay for somebody to say, well, I was raised a racist, right? <laughs> right? To your point, like um, now one lens says that's somebody who's talking about their journey. And another one says, well, could that make somebody feel like they're less welcome or wanting to work with that person? Definitely. Right? So, um, and, and that I think so often I, I do a little demonstration in my implicit bias training where I have a, a shape that is, uh, well, it's hard to describe because the whole point is that it's an ambiguous shape. Okay, so it sort of looks like an infinity symbol. It sort of looks like a figure eight. It sort of, it's just a slide and it has this thing icon on it. And I ask people to say, what do you see? And everybody, there's like 10 different things. Some people see raccoon eyes. Some people see oh, wow. infinity symbol. Some people will see uh, a, a racetrack, right? Uh, some, so the, the point here is that if you have something really simple and everybody sees something different in it. How much more is that going to happen when we're talking about people which are much more complicated? Definitely. We, we cannot control how someone interprets something or you can't tell somebody how to feel about something. And you have to understand that every single person is going to see something different. But that's what makes that's what makes us, you know, so great. That's what makes um, humans so great and interaction so wonderful because that we have those differing points of views uh, as humans, and that's how we develop these relationships. Um, and so now, now it leads me to the next question I was going to ask originally was, you know, you have people that have these viewpoints. You know, people have prejudice. It's it's very we we know to fact people have prejudice viewpoints, uh, maybe things that come off as racist, things like that. Um, and they don't want to change those. And, you know, our overall goal is to want to, or to at least, you know, motivate them to look inward. How do you think someone can approach that situation? Like I am, I'm dealing with someone who actively knows they have prejudice and they don't want to change that. How do I convince them or even not even convince them, but nudge them to maybe do some inward. It is a heavy lift. Definitely. That is a really hard problem. And I don't have a great answer for you. I'll be honest with you. I actually okay. have recommended with my implicit bias trainings. I've said, look, I would rather do this as a voluntary thing rather than as an obligatory thing for that reason because evidence the best evidence that we have is that there's these motivations or the person has to have a goal or the person has to like want they have to want to move forward in their journey in terms of how they relate to people of different groups mm. and until a person gets to that point it's it's not clear, you know, what you can do about it. Now, uh, a couple of thoughts, though, um, and these are more pie in the sky than based on research evidence. Um, 
if you, one of the powerful things that works is getting somebody to take the perspective of a member of another group. So if you had, and it seems so old fashioned and silly, like, oh, of course, like walk a day in a man's shoes, mile a man's shoes or whatever, you know, yeah. there's all these ton of truth. It turns out this is actually very powerful and it influences even implicit associations, like oh. immediately. So it's actually really effective. Uh, and so the question is, how could you get somebody who is unapologetic racist to imagine what it's like, you know, to a day in the life of, you know, a black person, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, you know, whether it's microaggressions, whether it's, you know, uh, clear discrimination, whether it, you know, what sort of things are, um, and, and for that person to imagine this situation from like sitting literally in that same spot. If you can do that, the evidence suggests that's pretty effective and they don't have to be somebody that walks in with motivation to begin with. So really, it sounds like um, they at least are going to have to be willing to have a conversation, at least that, even if they, they may have their opinions set on one thing, is what you're saying, they, if they can have that conversation and we can move to, okay, let's, let's look at perspectives. And they actively, they actually look at the perspective and they're not, you know, they just aren't, um, stubborn to their own viewpoints or um, they're going to have to be willing to accept the the rate of the conversation or how, how it's moving I guess is a way I could say that um, I think that's how I'm kind of get, getting what I'm getting from that answer but, but privilege is an invisible hand in a lot of ways and to this day, I will learn about something new and go, oh man, wow, really? Yeah. Like I was preparing for my implicit bias training and I was like, okay, let's just look at some institutional level stuff in Washington, DC. And there's a map of racial covenants in the District of Columbia that were in place in, in the titles of the homes where you were, there was a fine associated with selling it, renting it, so forth, to somebody who was uh, black. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. Written into the title, there's a fine, a very high, steep price. And in some cases, the developers put it in there. And in some cases, the residents petitioned to have it added. Oof. Yeah, it, 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 it just shows we, we have some, some room for growth, <laughs> definitely in this country. Um, that's on so many fronts, you know. Um, I like that you mentioned privilege because, you know, um, there are so many levels of privilege. There's a certain level of privilege when it comes to your race or privilege even um, in your gender. You know, as a male, we, as both males, we have a certain level of privilege that uh, women may not have. And so, you know, you have to be able to acknowledge that. I think that that's soon to be college, important. soon to be college graduate. 
Definitely. Yeah. See, and, and there's, there's probably going to be, a, there's going to be a level of privilege that comes, accompanies that. And then, you know, um, your name, your, your institution name, you know, how it's pretty well known. So um, that would probably be a level of privilege as well. I think acknowledging these things, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with having privilege because a lot of times these are facts you can't change. Right? You know, I, I can't change who I am in particular. Um, and so you have to acknowledge, yes, I have this level of privilege. Now, what am I gonna do? I think that's the most important question. That's the common answer. It's can I, what am I gonna use it for now? Um, the other is to challenge ourselves to be in dialogue with those who don't have the same privileges and really do good listening mm -hmm. and all the perspective taking and all those sorts of things. And we segregate ourselves in this society based on our privileges. And uh, right. so it, it, it's a challenge and, and something, you know, and as I say, I'm on my own journey. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, <laughs> saying, uh, but it is, it is. So mm -hmm. these are your, as you head out into the world, uh, as a newly minted uh, graduate of Howard University, <laughs> he's just smiling, he's laughing. Uh, you guys can't see, the, you can't see the laugh and the smile, but let me tell you, it's ear to ear. Oh, yeah. That's the good <laughs> I'll be stuff. Graduating man. soon. Wow. Oh, man. I'm proud of One you. I'm proud of you, and we just met. So there you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Congratulations. I know you've yeah, got a lot, of, so lot to think about. There's a lot to think about. Um, and that about does it um, for all my questions. Um, I think the root takeaway here, if, if you take anything away from this conversation is be willing to have the conversation. Um, I think that was a very important point um, that Dr. Barden made. Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Barden, for being here. I don't know if you have like anything you want to some research you want to plug or social media or oh no I'm, I'm good but thank you thomas it was an absolute pleasure and i just wish you and uh your collaboration here the all the best and i hope that this helps you in your journey uh to the next level uh wherever that might take you it sounds like you're asking yourself and others uh really good questions so as long as you keep doing that and listening close and sharing your perspective uh you're gonna do great wow thank you so much this will be on spotify at the peace coalition podcast um be sure to follow our instagram the peace coalition hu so thanks again dr barden and that has been the end of our first episode <laughs>